Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of How to Do Drugs. I am your host, Aliyah Janine, and today I actually have um, a professional, <laughs> a doctor on, um, Dr. David Clements. How are you, sir? I'm, I'm good. I, I, uh, you know, it's, it's Friday, get done early today. I, I scheduled this instead of seeing patients, so this is a nice way to end the week. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Although sucks for your patients. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> any. Um, so what exactly, what type of doctor are you exactly? Yeah. So I am uh, an addiction psychiatrist. Um, I uh, did a residency for adult psychiatry and then a, a fellowship in addiction psychiatry, which is an, another year on top of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many years total? Cause I, I know I have my bachelor's and I was thinking about like getting my PhD, but you're actually an MD, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm the, the one who taught, you can talk to and also gives drugs. Uh, nice. yeah. yeah. So it was four years of med school, uh, four years of residency, a year of fellowship. Um, so a lot of years. Yeah. That's a long, long time, but it was worth it. Right. Like you, obviously I noticed people that have to go to school a really, really long time for something must really, really love what they do to have to do that much schooling, you know, that much <laughs> education. One would hope at least. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I think, um, so a long time ago, I was a mechanical engineer and I, uh, that was, that was one of those things where you, you kind of been hiking along the path long enough that it's further to turn back than it is to finish the, the, the path. Um, you know, I, I think medicine is wonderful. It's uh, it's a unique job uh, to have to be able to help other people and um, do something that you love. But uh, you know, the, the system being what it is these days, and um, you know how how challenging it can be sometimes to navigate. It's it's certainly not without its frustrations and, and challenges. And um, you know, certainly always looking to marry rich. That's a I, yeah. I, that's the, the advice that I would give. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what I was always taught, or just like like grew up to believe, you know what I mean? It'd be like, oh, you just find a husband. Like I, I have a bit where I'm like, I'm a 1950 housewife trapped in a whore's body like that. I like feminism really fucked up a lot of things for some of us, I believe. Well, you know, I, so my, my mom is, is the biggest, I think, in, uh, influencer on, on me in that, that sense. Uh, she always said growing up uh, to marry a doctor, my dad is a surgeon. And okay. uh, so I did, I, I married an oncologist and okay. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of winding down, getting ready to retire in a couple months. Yeah, that's the you know, <laughs> cooking. Yeah, that that's uh, I, I I kind of going the other direction with the feminism. So yeah, no, I like um a dude. Uh, what is it that movie uh, with Michael Keaton, Mr. Mom? Yeah, I would love that. That's uh, right now. Right now we're raising two student loans. Um, but as soon as they they've uh, turned eighteen, yeah, and le left the house, uh, we're we're thinking about maybe having kids. So okay. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> after the student loans are, are out of the house. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. Um, thankfully, I don't have those. Uh, that was one thing, you know, sex work helped me out with was not having student loans. Obviously, not everyone, you know, wants to go and do that uh, to pay off bills. But um, it was a perk of the job for sure. <laughs> There's that moment where you realize you don't have the abs for it. And you're like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm just going to go with FAFSA. Um, yeah, I, the VABs escaped me. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so what made you get into, uh, addiction, uh, psychology, like specifically? Sure. So, um, so I, I used to be a mechanical engineer and, uh, I patented a surgical tool when I was in grad school. And that's kind of how I got into medical school. Um, uh, and thought I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, I've always been a, a bigger guy, I'm like six, five, six, six, and always played on really bad teams where I was the only large guy, like on the football team or the basketball <laughs> team. And it struck me really quickly that psychiatry and especially the kind of the world of addiction was very, there weren't many people playing for that team at the time. And, and certainly still not many now, um, mm -hmm. on top of that, when I was, uh, I guess it was like my second year, uh, in, in high school in 10th grade, a really good friend of mine died of a, of a heroin overdose, which was, it's like 1999, which is just kind of, um, you know, I, I went to a, a private school in the mainline, like suburbs of Philadelphia, and it was kind of, you know, completely disconnected from our experiences otherwise. Uh, mm -hmm. And it always had been something that uh, kind of sat with me. A lot of kids I grew up with, you know, got into Perk 30s and, you know, oxys and, and things like that and a lot of them unfortunately have kind of transitioned to heroin and mm -hmm. you know it's just something I saw a lot around and not many people doing it and also frankly and I know this sounds kind of silly treating addictions is fairly mechanized like it's 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 actually really simple mm -hmm. um, like the actual medical treatment of it um, which is part of the part part of why it's kind of so frustrating um, as someone who knows what works and how it works that it's not implemented more um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so that that's kind of how I got into it. Uh, it it, it kind of makes sense to me and, and I find it rewarding. And there's certainly uh, not a whole lot of people doing it. Yeah. So what um, so you had mentioned that like it's it's fairly simple, like this, like whatever the steps. Um, why isn't it like, like what what are those stages or whatever? And why do you think it's not like more predominant in helping people with addiction? Yeah. So so here's some some really straightforward data. Um, Using abstinence-based treatment, uh, I'll go through some substances that people abuse and, and, and uh, have use disorders for, and I'll give you the abstinence-based and then the medication-based and the differences in the sobriety rate. So okay. um, for opiates, uh, abstinence-based treatment, which means let's say we gave you housing, talk therapy every day, you didn't have to get a job, you didn't have any stressors other than um, just trying to stay sober, 5% mm -hmm. of people can stay sober for six months. When you add a medication like Vivitrol, that goes up to 35%. When you add Suboxone, it goes to 55%. When you add Methadone, it goes to 70%. When you add Sublocate, it goes to 87%. Unfortunately, about 11% of people who should be getting medications are getting medications. So it's a huge problem within a solution that we came up with years ago. I mean, Methadone has mm -hmm. been around forever. Yeah. Um, and for one reason or the other, and, and interestingly, you know, uh, especially opiate treatment, but addiction treatment or use disorder treatments in general mm -hmm. kind of straddle social and medical kind of nuance where there's, you know, people don't want methadone clinics in their backyard yeah. or there's certain stigma about being on certain medications. But, you know, uh, my wife is a cancer uh, doctor. You know, she's, if she had a chance to use a medication at an 87% cure rate versus a 5% cure rate, it would be malpractice if she nine did out it. of, yeah. And, and right now, nine out of 10 oncologists were ostensibly using the 5% one. It, it's, so it's just a silly problem to have the same thing with, you know, alcohol, about 20% mm -hmm. of people can stay sober through abstinence that doubles with Vivitrol. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So some of the medical treatments are, are fairly straightforward. The, the, the therapy's a lot more kind of complex, but yeah. um, at least most of what I do from a medication perspective is, is, is fairly, um, easy, relatively speaking. It's not brain surgery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you think a lot of the reason why 
like certain medications aren't like more implemented is because of, of mainly just like social stigmas and, and like just the culture around drugs and, and like uh, um, like recovery, like drug addicts? Well, I think what it is, is um, there, I think there's two parts to it. One is uh, there's a lot of kind of social stigma on, on from different kind of subgroups. So f- from a general population perspective, there's still a lot of morality in, in addiction where people uh, think that there's something wrong with a person because they can't stop doing uh, behavior like using a substance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's stigma in the in the community of people attempting to gain sobriety where um, unfortunately doctors who've treated addictions um, because of the huge demand, um, some of them have been um, kind of nefarious or had alternate goals. Uh, you know, most of them were making money um, so that there's a, a stigma in terms of getting treatment. Uh, the current kind of reimbursement, the way that people get paid in, from insurances, a lot of them, you know, the rates that they give for different codes that mm-hmm. are kind of connected to different services really don't reflect what the standard of care should be. Um, you know, you, one of the most profitable things you can do is open an intensive outpatient uh, clinic. You don't need a psychiatrist. You don't need mm-hmm. to give medications. You're doing group therapy and the qualifications of the participants don't necessarily have to be at any particular level. Mm-hmm. You know, one would argue that, that some people would do better with um, uh, access to you know, medications um, and, and less frequent uh, appointments. Yeah, there's also a lot of uh, stigma where people on parole have to have urine drug screens every couple of days. They have mm-hmm. to get letters signed by AA meetings and NA meetings and um, and then on top of all this, a lot of people who struggle with addiction also struggle with a lot of social and personal issues, whether psychological, you know, you know actual diagnosable diseases or things as, um, you know, complex, but straightforward as homelessness and poverty. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Um because I've had one of my buddies on and he he's from the United States, but he, you know, he moved to Amsterdam and there, you know, drug use is, is, is legal for, for the most part and everything is government regulated. He told me that like, if you buy, let's say like ecstasy or Molly or whatever you want to call it, um, you can actually like send some of it into the government. They'll test it, test it to let you know what it is. They have methadone, like it's very, socially like more acceptable you know it's not hidden like you know they don't also they don't hide sex work and and so it is a lot of it do you think any of that really has to do with like obviously money and the whole like medical infrastructure of the United States is just trash especially like after just having cancer and like dealing with insurances and like how much I still have to pay and all this other stuff it's really crazy um do you think a lot of it um, obviously political, but do you think there's also still like some religious, like, like background, like hidden with that at all? Yeah. I mean, so you, I, I think, uh, you look at a lot of the names of hospitals, a lot of them were you know, started as Mary's you know, and- religious <laughs> endeavors. Um, but I, I think the other part is it's a, you know, the, the American healthcare system is a lot like a car that we're building piece by piece while we're driving it. <laughs> So it's, it's like, it's hard. You can't stop it. Like you can't turn off a hospital. Yeah. Um, you know, you, all these systems are, once they go on, they can't go off and they're all kind of, you know, built by different people. They don't communicate. Um, I see people with every time I see a different person, they have a different insurance. Um, you know, you know, some people have a hundred thousand dollar copay. Some people have a $5 copay, you know, or deductibles. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's no consistency and, uh, unfortunately, it's just kind of it's 
it's very odd. It's it's like going to someone's house and every room is completely different. And yeah. <laughs> it just makes for a very strange house. Yeah. <laughs> Which for a house, that actually sounds kind of cool. But yeah, when you're trying to like fix yourself, it's um it's <laughs> right. It, it's it's a nightmare. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh and, and that's the other part is that there's so many things that are uh you know, your example of Amsterdam. Um mm-hmm. The reason I think that works to some extent is, is that on a very basic level, the, the psychological approach I take to addiction is an active addiction and really active kind of dysfunction in general as a human being is the themes are isolation and control mm-hmm. and an active recovery, sobriety, or just kind of being a, a reasonable kind of successful person is about acceptance and connection. And, and I try to keep it you know, from a dynamic perspective, as simple as those terms. So if you mm-hmm. look at in Amsterdam, you know, by making it public, by making it open, by making it um, acceptable, you're increasing connection, you're increasing connect, uh, acceptance. Uh, you know, I'm sure you know people who have done the exact same substance and one of them has struggled and one of them hasn't. Mm-hmm. And sure, it could be genetics to some extent, but there also likely is some component of, yeah, well, Brian was always kind of out with other people. He kind of knew what he was doing. Other people knew what he was doing. He talked about it and, you know, Adam never told anybody that he was doing this and he was doing it by himself. You know, he was secretive about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I think you had mentioned sex work, this, the same idea of, you know, someone's uh, ability to kind of engage or not engage with something that is seen as taboo or isolated culturally, mm-hmm. you know, certainly has a lot to do with that. Are they seeing it as something that they uh, connect about, accept, or are they isolated in it? Are they trying to control it and manage it? Mm-hmm. It, it, it kind of, it, it spans all of these kind of endeavors we engage in as human beings. But when it comes to addiction, that's kind of how I try to think about it. Yeah. I do like that. Okay. So you were talking about like, like medications that help with uh, opioids and stuff like that methadone. Um, What are some medications for people who like, like meth or crack or, you know, like uppers, because I've always been an upper person and never been a down. (laughs) Fair, fair, fair. So, um, all right. So uh, it's a great question. And and the short answer is none. Okay. (laughs) Um, uh, When, when I was at Penn, um, uh, yeah, when I was at Penn, uh, we were doing a lot of um, research on on stimulant use disorder, and they had tried so many times so many different uh, substances that the um, the FDA was just saying like, please stop submitting uh, you know, grants for research in this area at the time. Yeah. Um, because nothing really seemed to work. Now, um, from a therapy perspective, the best thing you can do is called contingency management. Have you heard mm-hmm. of that before? Yeah. Yeah. So, so contingent management is basically you pay people for uh, urine that doesn't have the you know, traces of the substance in it. And um, whether it's through like a lottery system or you're just paying them, it's actually fairly successful in terms of maintaining sobriety. Um, from a medication perspective, um, Cochrane has a great review from Yale that showed that uh, stimulant replacement had some success using Adderall or other ADHD medications mm-hmm. for stimulant use disorder. Recently, there's a paper, uh, maybe like a year or so ago, that showed Remeron, um, mirtazapine, had some really good um, uh, efficacy with uh, methamphetamine use disorder. And I've used that to some extent in the past. Um, but a lot of stimulant use disorder, th- there's kind of two things to think about. One is, are they compensating for some other issue? So is this a, an issue with depression? Is this an issue with um, kind of 
physiological health. I've some people that have hyped, that were actually turned out to be hypothyroid or mm-hmm. um, had issues with their nutrition that were supplementing a stimulant. Um, is it social? Have they kind of taken on a world that requires that they're up, you know, 20 hours a day? And, mm-hmm. and is that a, is that an easier decision to say, I'm not going to do that job anymore rather than yeah. <laughs> stop using this? Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a thing, but you know, to some extent, I think pathologizing all substance use is kind of a ridiculous idea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, you know, we're all kind of here for only so long and, you know, what you choose to do uh, in terms of, you know, an experience or not, I think as long as your eyes are open to it and, and you're kind of willing to accept and be insightful as to what it is, mm-hmm. I, I think that's kind of what it means to be a human being. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've, um, I've noticed cause I recently found out that I have ADHD, um, at 41 and which I was like, probably you know, the, the stimulant uses. Yeah. Which makes so much sense. I had, uh, one of my other buddies on actually, uh, Brian six, he's also from Philly. And we were talking about like, cause, cause you know, people that are partying and doing a bunch of cocaine, they come up with all these ideas and they're like, Oh, we're going to do this and this. And it's like, I actually do a lot of the things that I came up with. I'm like, Oh no, that's a really good idea. We should do that. And I've, um, I've spoken to another doctor as well. Cause I asked, I'm like between, um, like Adderall and, and cocaine. Cause, uh, when, when I was in school, I wrote a paper on the difference between of what sugar and cocaine, you know, do to the brain, which is basically the same thing. But I have a, a bit about where like, I'm a scientist. So I got some cocaine and I always have candy. I always have candy. So I'm like, let's see what it does. It was like 26 pages. It was ridiculous. But, um, <laughs> but I noticed that sometimes with like, cause I can't take really strong Adderall. Cause then I'm like super wired and like cleaning, you know, the bathroom with a toothbrush type type wired. But I noticed that like, if I have like a decent amount of like good cocaine and just like little bumps throughout the day. I noticed that that actually, like, I'm not like super wired and like, I could sleep a little bit better. And I, I even noticed that once I actually started taking Adderall, like somewhat regularly, I try not to take it all of the time, but I do actually like sleep better, which is. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, an interesting thing about, about ADHD is mm-hmm. one of the things we don't talk about as, um, kind of the core dysfunction is, is a, a, a term called task shifting. Mm-hmm. So ADHD is, is really a, a dysregulation or a lack of short-term memory, which is um, you know, controlled it to some extent by a dopaminergic or a dopamine system. Mm-hmm. And uh, the short-term memory is kind of when you're writing an email um, and then someone you know knocks on your door and you turn to answer the door and you go back to sit down and you're like, what the hell was I writing about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like that our memory is like an Etch-a-Sketch and it gets shook whenever we mm-hmm. shift our focus. Um, mm-hmm the uh that shift itself is distressing kind of going back and and realizing you don't remember what's going on is a distress in itself and can build anxiety so a lot of people have this um kind of parallel anxiety with an attention issue anxiety kind of builds and can make it more challenging to go to sleep it can be the anxiety itself can cause issues with concentration Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people phase out of ADHD from the ages of you know, 18 to 19 to in their early 20s, but mm-hmm. you know, persisting ADHD symptoms managed kind of on a baseline level, it makes sense that it would be easier to do things like go to sleep or kind of, you know, obviously finish tasks, but a lot of that is the anxiety is kind of taken away. 
Oh yeah, no, I definitely um, am, oh, have. I, I've always been a very anxious <laughs> person, um, uh, just the way I was raised and, and stuff like that. And I have, um, I guess it's like a perpetual fight or flight syndrome where I'm just always like, like afraid someone's going to kill me for some reason. Um, now it's definitely has calmed down a lot as PTSD, uh, was physically abused by, by my stepmother, mm-hmm. um, a lot. So that I think has some, something to do with it. And I was thinking about like, once I like found out that I did have ADHD, I thought about like how, cause I was always a good student um with school and stuff like that but I I had to be because if I didn't I would get in a lot of trouble especially like in middle school I always had to have like a minimum of a 3.0 otherwise like I would get in in a lot of trouble sometimes you know physically beat so I'm like oh fear helped with a lot of like unfortunately so I think that also may have had just been like ingrained in me. It's like, oh, if I don't get something done, something bad is going to happen to me. So that like would help me like focus on things, I guess. Well, it's, it's interesting. So stress releases this hormone called cortisol, mm-hmm. which kind of evolutionarily is this, the, the analogy I give is uh, we need to keep the fire going. So throw everything in the house into the fire. Yeah. <laughs> You're burning chairs and books and carpets. You know, it, it, cortisol uh, breaks down muscle, bone, fibrous mm-hmm. tissue, cardiac tissue, just to make glucose to kind of increase our, our energy supply. Mm-hmm. One of the things it also does is it releases dopamine. So a lot of people with ADHD, do really well when they're cramming. Mm-hmm. They do really well in stressful situations uh, because the cortisol goes up and they can focus. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas most people get much more scattered when fear gets introduced. In this oh no, way. I'm like a freaking laser point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I was reading one of the, the blog posts you put on about your uncle, I think mm-hmm. you, it was about. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's interesting kind of coming from a a, a world uh, genetically that functioned in so much dysfunction mm-hmm. that there must be something to that in terms of, and I think from you know, most of human existence has been closer to a biker gang than not. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they may I, not realize it, but yeah, yeah, I was thinking about, yeah, it, the, you know, we're like probably in the first three or four generations of, you know, being as violent as possible and as strong as possible wasn't the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I wonder if kind of the symptoms that we have now are kind of more kind of vestibular things, kind of like an appendix. Uh, that okay. we, we historically were under a lot more stress. Historically, mm-hmm. you know, did have a lot more uh, going on that that cortisol was more useful. Yeah, yeah. People, yeah. No, that's my jam. It's cortisol. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's horrible. But yeah, no, it has um, it has definitely helped out a lot. Now um, they're doing a lot more. Um, talking about uh, therapy for certain things using MDMA and like LSD and mushrooms, uh, obviously being an addiction psychologist, would you ever implement anything like that into with your patients? Or do you try to keep those drugs away because they're like fun ones? Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, so I would say, you know, it, it depends. I have patients who um, so a lot of those medications or substances, um, the way that they work is kind of their dissociative properties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly you know, that's a tool that can be very, very helpful when someone has kind of a coupled experience to an, an, a, um, a sensation. So you, you'd mentioned kind of a, a history of, of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when we have histories of trauma, 
our bodies respond um, to the slightest cue that that trauma is reoccurring with the same physical experience that we had in those moments. Mm -hmm. And that coupling is so strong because of the intensity of those experiences that one could kind of theorize that were you able to re-experience the memory objectively with while decoupling or depersonalizing the person from an experiential perspective, mm -hmm. you could kind of retrain the brain to access those memories without the emotional access. And to that extent, I think they're wonderfully useful. Um, you know, there's a, and I'm, I may get this wrong and, and I apologize ahead of time, but I think it was Bill W kind of the beginning of AA. Mm -hmm. uh, part of his first experiences of getting sober for the first time were through a, a psychedelic. Yeah, no, I, I remember. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah so, <laughs> I remember hearing that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't discount it and, and certainly not everybody, you know, taking one drug, you know, all, all, all drugs that we have deemed drugs of abuse as a mm -hmm. culture aren't somehow connected that if you take one, you're going to take all of them or it's yeah. going to cause you. So, you know, like you said, stimulants are your jam. Um, you know, giving you a sedative isn't necessarily going to throw you into a loop. Um, you know, I, I think most people, most people don't have consistent hallucinogen use. Yeah, um, at least not in. Not, not <laughs> I was like, mm, wow. I guess, I, yeah, I guess there's like the hippie trail kind of the rainbow trail going up and down the Appalachians. That's a different thing. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think using it as a tool, I've used ketamine before with patients, um, mm -hmm. with some uh, success uh, for mm -hmm. treatment resistant depression. Mm -hmm. Um, and certainly the studies are interesting. The most recent one comparing mushrooms or psilocybin to um, antidepressants was a little bit of a misrepresentation. Um, I don't know if, if you saw the, the, the study just came out that, that stated that, um, microdosing of, I think microdosing of psilocybin compared to Zoloft use, um, showed similar results at six weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the problem was the dosages they used for the Zoloft were 50 milligrams, which is sub therapeutic and okay. six weeks is actually sooner than you're supposed to get a response for Zoloft, which is eight, uh, six to eight weeks. Okay. So it was kind of like, they're like, Hey, let's, and there's also, I think only 36 patients, which, Oh um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So ho hopefully they do more. And, and I think part of the reason they're not able to do research on it, the same mm -hmm. reason we don't do research on gun violence is uh, you know, we have these social kind of pressures that are more political than they are common sense. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. A lot of um, politics get into that. I've never, um, I've never taken any antidepressants. I was always afraid um, cause like my mother, like, like she has to take them now for the rest of her life. She cannot not take them. And I'm like, I don't, it's so funny. I'm like, I don't want to have to take pills for the rest of my life <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. Um, I have taken, I've taken Zyban to help me quit smoking. Like the five times I did quit smoking for about a year. And it's always about like the eighth or ninth month mark. Um, you know, cause, cause you take uh, the Zyban, I think it's for like three months, you know, and then, and then it was, it helped out tremendously with like the, um, with like the, the cravings in my brain, basically like, you know, breaking that habit that the pattern of, of smoking, like that really, really helped, but it was around like the eighth or ninth month mark. I like go out, have a couple of drinks. I'm like, I can have just one. <laughs> right. and, then, and then I'm a smoker again. I'm like, Oh, I wonder maybe if it would help. Um, like if I take, you know, if I would take it longer, I know they try to give me Wellbutrin ones, Wellbutrin, cause I'm also, um, very suicidal. I could jump off a building at any given time. I'm kidding. Kind of, <laughs> but like, Wellbutrin actually made me like really like sad where I was like, I really want to do this. I was like, 
No. So no Wellbutrin. I always thought that was strange that some antidepressants actually make you more suicidal than you kind of already are. But I noticed that when I microdose with mushrooms, especially, you know, that this, um, past summer, like that actually helped like cleared up, like a lot of like crap that I was going through, you know, emotional stuff. Like I worked out a bunch of stuff years ago, but there's obviously still some stuff that I just don't know is if ever will kind of go away. And it's just a matter of like how I respond to things now. Yeah. It, it's, uh, again, I, 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 hear that all the time kind of people being started on antidepressant and having a really dangerous and you know distressing response to it and mm-hmm. um it's tough because sometimes people see a doctor and they don't see them again for six months yeah and they're like what am i supposed to do on this so uh, to hear that you had a better response with the, the microdosing again you know maybe maybe not um you know i don't you know we're not doing a session or anything here but yeah. i would say that <laughs> <laughs> but I'd say that, you know, that certainly speaks to that, that kind of dissociation, that disconnection. And mm-hmm. if anxiety is a big driver of your distress in mm-hmm. general, and I mean, you are, I mean, kind of anybody's distress, kind of having a dissociation from a kind of a, an anxiety vis-a-vis a trauma is a mm-hmm. wonderful relief. I think it really is. <laughs> it really, really was. Yes, absolutely. I love that. Um, so what are some of like, because obviously every person is different. And even if they're, if, even if they're on like the same type, you know, addicted to the same types of substances, obviously you need different programs for, for different people. Um, what do you find works the best for, um, let, let's say like a, an alcoholic? Um, like, cause, cause I know that they have like that, that medication that makes people really, really sick if they drink or something like that. I wish they had that for nicotine. God, I wish they <laughs> so um so the the medications antabuse or disulfiram okay interesting fact about disulfiram it was approved by the fda in 1952 i think which was two years before you actually had to prove that drugs worked you just had to prove they didn't kill people oh Jesus. yeah um so um, unfortunately uh from a research perspective antabuse doesn't technically work okay, um, okay. It's, it's no better than placebo over time because people stop taking it um, I do use it fairly um, regularly in certain populations. If you're a surgeon um, or a pilot, um, someone who is you know, has a oversight group or oversight committee or something that you can return to work, but we're going to have someone watch you take this every day. Yeah, um, it's, it's really helpful. It's it's helpful in short spurts um, as a treatment. But the standard of care from a medication perspective for alcohol use disorder mm-hmm. is the Vivitrol shot, which is a once a month shot um, of naltrexone, and it's it's done in the gluteal muscle, kind of alternating side to side, month to month, and it, mm-hmm. it puts a little kind of marble of this white kind of gel that dissolves over time throughout the month. And the idea is that it stops the uh, euphoria or buzz from alcohol. Okay. Um, It's not perfect. Uh, It doubles Mm -hmm. the likelihood of you staying sober from 20% to 40%. And certainly that's more than any other medication we have statistically speaking, but Mm -hmm. alcohol, you know, when you think about alcohol, you think about kind of social activities. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the problem with recovering from alcohol is it's such a stigma, um, you know, in terms of feeling different, uh, feeling other than, you know, imagine you lose all the people that you used to spend time with, mm-hmm. use this bit, the best coping mechanism you have access to at times. 
Um, yeah, so it's it's something where kind of making connection, kind of accepting and being kind of open with with the fact that you struggle with it is, mm-hmm. is usually how people get through it. Yeah. Um, now with the way, cause like I love brains, brains are super fun, um, and studying them. Um, now some people, like we had mentioned earlier, some people, um, can do a substance and not be addicted and just do it like casually. And then some people like have to do it constantly, you know, you know, like how, so can you explain like how the brain functions, like why some people can just do a little bit or and why some people get addicted? Well, I, I actually wonder if I could turn this back on you. Okay. <laughs> so, so, but but maybe not about kind of substances. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of um, and by the way, I would say the first time I heard heard you was on the Artie Quitter podcast. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I was. I'm a huge Artie Lang fan. <laughs> and uh, and then I yeah. So, but and I actually found out there was a tweet like uh, like two weeks ago where someone was like, I just Googled you and found out what you did before comedy. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, I remember, yeah, yeah. I, I remember laughing. So I was like, that happened to me. It was like three months after I heard on Artic Quitter podcast. Cause I was like, oh, did she ever come to Philadelphia? And I Googled you and I was like, this can't be me. <laughs> but um, my question is, you know, that is a, you know, in terms of sex work, I'm sure mm-hmm. you've seen people that have been destroyed by it. And you've seen people that have survived and kind of gotten through it and people that have you know, seen it as a, as a profession that they embrace and, and mm-hmm. accept and walk, work through in the same way that kind of asking about why doesn't everyone get addicted? What do you think mm-hmm. it is about different people's engagement with that, that, that job where some do very poorly and some do very well? Oh, that is a good question. I think, um, well, with that, I think the pressures of a family, definitely like what, what the family may think about, um, sex work, uh, obviously social stigmas. If, if a person is really religious, I know that, that some females, um, that, you know, started out informed, you know, grew up really religious and then did this and then felt like tremendous guilt because of that. Um, a lot of times money, you know, you know, where, where people can, um, there's a lot of people, there's this great movie on a Netflix called I care. I don't, I don't know if you saw this, but it's about a a woman who, um, she takes care of like elderly people, but basically like she scams and be like, Oh, I need to take, I forgot what they're called, but they're people like, like the state like provides would be like, Oh, you're not cognitive or you can't take care of yourself. So the state puts in. And so she goes and sells all this stuff. And she's like, she just does it for the money. Like she doesn't care what people think. And I think that, um, I think maybe, I guess, like maybe like the difference between like an extrovert and an, and an introvert is just that some people are capable of doing things and, and not and not caring about the social repercussions of it or um, or, you know, the social stigmas or, or you know, the family and, and stuff like that, where money may just be like a main motivator. And for me, when, when it came with sex work, it's like we're all using body parts, you know, people are like, you're selling your body. I'm like, you're sitting in an office in a cubicle for eight hours. How are you not selling? You're selling your ass. You're just selling it to that chair. Yeah. I'm like, at least I get off on it. I'm like, you're stuck there. You have hemorrhoids. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's like, so like that whole thing. So that's, um, I think money may be a big motive factor. Like it is definitely one of the biggest ones. And, um, just being able to, to have like enough self-respect and self-esteem to not care about like these very outdated 
views and, and based a lot of it, obviously religion and, and yeah, to just not give a fuck about what other people think. Would, would you say that people who did well normally kind of had other people around them that knew what they were doing, supported them doing it? Yeah. Or, or yeah. Oh yeah. No, definitely need, um, like my, like I talked to my family before I did it. Cause like I was a stripper and like, I started dancing. Like I literally started dancing to piss off my mom when I was 18. I'm like, I'm going to be a stripper, you know, because a lot of times women who get into sex work, they have more mommy issues than daddy issues. <laughs> it's definitely, um, at least something that, that I have noticed. Um, that would be an interesting thing to talk about. I'd never, I haven't heard that before. And I, uh, <laughs> That's re- that's interesting and certainly not something. I think the the norm would be the other the other expectation. But, well, a lot of well, another. yeah, a lot, a lot of people think that it is a daddy issue. Be like, oh, the father wasn't in the girl's life, so she's trying to find you know the love of her father in other places. But a lot of times it has to do with um, very toxic relationships with with mothers and like, uh, for me. Um, like I know my mom loves me very much, but a lot of times she just let me do whatever I want. She'd be like, all right, well, you need to figure this out on your own. Like she wasn't very supportive. She wasn't, I remember when I was like by the sixth grade, I was taller than her. So I kind of like, I had no respect for my mom for a really long, mainly just cause I was bigger than her. I'm like, oh, and that's growing up with giants be like, oh, I could beat you up. So you can't tell me what to do. I was such an asshole, <laughs> um, growing up. Um, fuck, what were we talking about? Um, moms. We were talking about kind of how people survived kind of the, uh, oh, oh, yeah, 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 the stigma. Um, yeah. So I had, I had told, uh, I talked to my uncle about it and I'm just like, cause I'm like, most of the people I'm related to are men. Um, I have one aunt, you know, and they're all uncles and then cousins are normally like most of them are all dudes. So I'm like, I kind of have to tell them. <laughs> and I'm just like, Hey, I can make this much money. And then at the time I'm like, it's just something I want to try. Like I, you know, I'd gone to school to be a cop and like, they were surprised, but they're, they were also like, not surprised if that makes sense. They're like, well, yeah, you do like to do really crazy things and you're related to us. So yeah, <laughs> not, um, not that big. <laughs> so so <laughs> what, what you just kind of went through is, is what I hear is people who struggled were, um, isolated because mm-hmm. they weren't telling anybody mm-hmm. um, they were trying to control. Maybe they weren't, tr- they didn't want their, you know, this information getting back to their family. They didn't want anyone to know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Whereas someone who was doing it successfully accepted, understand it, understood what it was and was mm-hmm. connecting with other people saying, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 to answer your question, I would say yeah. that it's very, very similar when it comes to substances, when okay. it's a, um, Hey, this is what we're doing together. I understand what this is. I know when I use it, when I don't use it now, certainly there's some exceptions. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I time and time again, crack cocaine seems to be like this, just other monster, um, you know, from a, from a treatment perspective, but in mm-hmm. general, I think that you know, maintaining acceptance and connection and, uh, kind of rooting yourself in that. I think that's how people get through and kind of use substances recreationally rather than, you know, using them as a, a, a treatment. Of yeah. Or as like a clutch or, or whatever. Yeah, no, I've definitely have done both. <laughs> yeah, and, and, a, a and, little and, bit. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Life is not black and white. Uh, people can be addicted to some things, not mm-hmm. addicted to others can struggle with some substances, but only some of the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I love that Louis C.K. joke. You know, I don't do drugs unless I do, because then they <laughs> then they work really well. <laughs> like, um, yeah, that's hilarious. And it's you know, it's um, 
yeah, I, I think to, to say that someone has to be one way or the other is, is mm-hmm. ridiculous. I mean, I've never met two people who are the same. Yeah. And that and that is, unfortunately, with a lot of people who don't use and, you know, may have never used or like, oh, you're either a drug user or you're not a drug user. Like there's no in between. It's like, well, no, you know, sometimes. But now, especially that I'm older, I'm like, there are times, you know, if I do get like really depressed where I'm like, oh, I'm going to go get waste or, you know, buy this. I'm like, no, that's actually a bad idea. <laughs> like that's a clutch kind of thing. And it's like, we're, I always say, I'm like, we're a little too old for that now. Like, <laughs> right, 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 right. I, I, yeah, I remember when you, you you could almost tell yourself like, I know this is stupid, but I, I've got like three more years of stupid left in me. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was up until I was like thirty five. I'm like, all right, I can't use that excuse. Anymore. Yeah, I just yeah, I, I yeah, I, I I put my name on a mortgage document, and I was like, I guess this is like stupid has you know it's turned off. I guess that's the, you know. yeah. yeah. And you sign yeah that signing a lease for an expensive ass apartment. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, I'm a grown up now, I guess. Oh, okay. It's grown up time. <laughs> did you now? let me, this is completely off topic, but did you, you know, with the world, the world of COVID, did you have any thoughts about leaving New York? No, no. My mom had asked me, um, like if I wanted to go to Wisconsin and stay with her and my stepdad, um, who was a big Trump supporter, uh, with their crazy dog. Uh, it's a golden lab who isn't fixed yet. And like my dog's older and very chill. And I'm just like, oh no, I'll take my chances on the island. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, cause I may kill one of you. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, I didn't like, it was interesting. Like, like I have jokes about it, how I thought I was going to be, you know, Furiosa from Fury Road or, or whatever, but I ended up being Alice in Wonderland, just tripping like most of the pandemic. That's all like, cause there was nothing else to do. And so like, I, cause like, I like mushrooms and stuff like that. But like, yeah, last summer I, I did like a lot more acid, like almost as much acid as I did, or maybe more than like when I was in high school, I was just like, well, let's do some acid today. Fuck it. Yeah. And uh, that was one of the, 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 the things that came up a lot over this last year mm-hmm. doing treating addictions was a lot of our isolation really, really had people struggling and yeah. a lot of substance use kind of picked up to some extent, some mm-hmm. of it ticked down because access was a little harder. Yeah. Um, Not but, for uh, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some, some <it> <laughs> yeah. 